I want to talk about the, uh, the Jesus habit of embracing the mission. What a great study it's been this summer going through the various habits in the life of our Lord. And, uh, you know, as we get ready to launch into the fall, as the university students are back on campus this week, as uh, the teens are back in their classrooms, as we uh, re-engage after summer vacation, what better habit to focus on right now than the Jesus habit of embracing the mission? And I'd like to begin in Luke chapter 4, And you know, this is one of those events that if I could just for a moment go back in time and select a handful of events to witness firsthand in the ministry of Jesus, this would be for me really one of those cherished moments. Look at what we read in verse 14 at the very onset of the public ministry of Jesus. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a moment that must have been as Jesus began his public ministry to the lost. You know, as I read through the scriptures, one thing that strikes me is that Jesus could not have been more crystal clear about his mission to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom to prisoners. Recovery of the sight for those who are blind. To set those who are oppressed free. 
You know anybody who's poor? How about it? Is there anybody in here that at one time was a prisoner? That was oppressed? Any of us relate to being blind in our spiritual life? You know, I am telling you, Jesus could not have been more clear about what his life was all about. And if you had any doubt at all, simply go to Luke chapter 19 in verse 10, when it simply says, the Son of Man came to find lost people and to save them. The Son of Man came to save lost, to find lost people and to save them. You see, I don't think I'm telling you anything perhaps insightful for most of you to say that Jesus had as his core purpose, it was without a doubt his central focus. But let's talk practically about what that really means for a person who has that as their core purpose. What's a disciple going to look like who really has bringing people into the kingdom of God as their purpose in life? Well, for Jesus, it ordered his schedule. It determined, in fact, his daily routine. In fact, everything he did, I put before you, was ordered by his purpose. I don't know if you've thought about this, but every person that Jesus ever healed, every sermon, in fact, he ever preached, every miracle he performed, every word he ever spoke, every prayer he ever uttered was so people could be saved. So let me ask you and I this morning, what's your purpose? What are you, at this time in your life, really passionate about? Why did you get out of bed this morning? What drives you? I mean, honestly, what really drives you? And how about where are you really going right now with your life? You know, when the Bible says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And if Jesus says the Son of Man came to find lost people and save them, how are we doing in imitating the habit of Jesus embracing the mission? I like what Rick Warren says about it in The Purpose Driven Life. 
He says the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. Your peace of mind or even your happiness. It is far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. I've shared before an illustration that is so good and so challenges me to my very core that it's worth, in my opinion, repeating. It's about Steve Jobs and the genius he was at marketing computers. But even for Steve Jobs, genius as he was, There was a time where he needed some help in marketing his incredible little magic box. You see, even he was in need of an expert who could help him take his Apple computers into the ring against the 300-pound gorilla, IBM. Do they even still make computers today? John Scully... He became the target of Steve Jobs' attention. Scully, at the age of 38, was Pepsi-Cola's youngest president. He masterminded the Pepsi Generation ad campaign that, for the first time, dethroned Coke from its number one position in history. Well, Steve Jobs, he knew it would take a lot to get Scully. He whined and dined him and made him numerous offers, by the way, with money he didn't even have, but all to no avail. You see, Scully, like a lot of us, friends, he was really content with his present and successful position. Finally, as Job writes in his autobiography, out of exasperation in that dinner, he throws out a question that changed the course of Apple history and, dare I say, John Scully's history. He said simply, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? I think that may be the same question that God is asking us this morning out of exasperation and, dare I say, even some desperation. Do you want to spend the rest of your existence here on earth selling sugar water? Or do you really want to change the world? It was the single piercing question which Scully would go on to say, leverage the weight 
in his decision to leave the security of Pepsi and venture out with the opportunity with Apple to change the world. I have two very simple points this morning to try to inspire us to imitate our Lord and embrace the mission. The first one is embracing the mission simplifies your life. Wow, maybe now I got your attention. You complicated people, you. You see, it defines what you do, and it defines what you don't do. Your purpose becomes the standard you use to evaluate which activities are essential and which aren't. You simply ask, does this activity help me fulfill one of God's purposes for my life? You see, without a clear purpose, you really have, honestly, no foundation on which to base decisions, allocate your time, use your limited resources. You will, in fact, tend to make choices based on circumstances, pressures, and even scarier, your mood at that moment. People who don't know their purpose, well, they often try to do too much. And that causes unnecessary stress and, dare I say, even crushing fatigue. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 7, a pretentious, showy life is an empty life. A plain and simple life is a full life. Newsflash. You can't get it all done. And if you can't get it all done, dare I say it means you are trying to do more than God ever intended for you to do. And you're wasting his time in some way. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You, Lord, give perfect peace to those who keep their purpose firm and put their trust in you. Embracing the mission simplifies your life. And I just know at this time of year, at the end of August, as you get the kids back in school, as you prepare to hit the books once again, as you realize, well, vacation's over and it's time to go back to work, it's that time of year where you have to uh, reevaluate what gets your time, what gets your attention, what your priorities in life truly, truly are. And for Jesus, and for those who follow Jesus, it's clear 
We can't get it all done, but we can do what God intends for us to do. The second point is embracing the mission focuses your life. Point number two, embracing the mission focuses your life. There are a few things in life more powerful than something that is focused. I'll give you just one example. Light. Diffused light has little power or impact. But you can concentrate its energy by focusing it. You know, with a magnifying glass, the rays of the sun can be focused to set grass or paper on fire. But when light is truly focused even more, light in the form of a laser beam can cut through steel. The same light that if it's diffused, has little impact. But when focused, and that focus honed down even more, is incredibly powerful to even cut through steel. Just light cutting through steel. You want your life to have an impact? You want to be powerful? Focus like Jesus focused. Focus on what's eternal. Focus on the mission at hand. Understand what God's will is. I love Ephesians 5 in verse 11. And I thought this morning I might need to get your attention even more, so I'm going to read from the message. It's a paraphrase, but I think it kind of hits us over the head with the two-by-four. And in Ephesians 5, verse 11, it says, Don't waste your time on useless work. Mere busy work. The barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in darkness where no one will see. Rip off the cover of those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. For these are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the Master wants. Wow, what a passage. Maybe it's time... Some of us consider climbing out of our coffins. 
Maybe it's time at the very least to wake up from our sleep. To, to focus the light a little more clearly onto what our priorities really are at this hour in our life. And how those priorities really match up to He whose footsteps we are walking in. You see, life can be simply a game of trivia pursuit. We can uh, really be like a top, if you will. A top that uh, just spins around, changing directions, changing jobs, changing relationships, shedding congregations or other externals, hoping each change will settle the confusion and feel the emptiness of the heart. You think, well, if I just move congregations, maybe that will be a wake-up call for me spiritually. But you see, it really doesn't solve the real problem because you go there. And you're the same person there as you were here. Now, you have to think about that. I've heard people say, well, I just, I just need to wake up, so I'm going to go on a mission team. You know, I remember a time when, when you went on a mission team, you were actually chosen. It wasn't come one, come all. In fact, people were brokenhearted because they didn't get chosen. And the reason they didn't get chosen is because they weren't doing well spiritually. And you know, we were audacious enough to think back in those days that if you weren't fruitful in the last few months, you weren't doing that well spiritually. Whoa, that's audacious, I realize. That's a new teaching. But you know, if your life wasn't bearing fruit, you probably didn't have the right priorities in your life. And so you weren't put on a mission team just to be put on a mission team because you think, well, you know, I can get a fresh start. Look at people who've gone on mission teams because they wanted to go on a mission team, and look at how that mission team is done. And sometimes we compare ourselves with ourselves, and then we wonder why we're this way. You know, this week, it really dawned on me that this was the 30th anniversary of the planting of the Toronto church. And if uh, you're the AV team, I'm way out of my notes now, so just uh, see if you can jump back in somewhere. But I remember that mission team. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a philosophy of come one, come all. People were chosen. In fact, it started with 16, and they gathered a whole year in advance in Boston to pull the team together, to work on our unity, to function as a team, to share our faith, to see what our weaknesses were. And people were actually asked to step off the team. By the time, 10 months later, the team was sent in 1985 to Toronto, there were 24 of us. I was one of the leaders of that team, one of the co-evangelists, and I was a whopping 28 years old. Seasoned evangelist. 
Those 24 disciples in the first year in a nation that is so secular that you bring up religion and people practically want to spit on you. It's like going to Europe. It's just, we, we, you know, we've seen thousands of years of this Christianity thing. That's not for us. Churches are empty in Canada. That first year, those 24 individuals saw 128 baptisms. The Sunday attendance, the first Sunday, we prayed for a whole year that God would give us 100 people at our first service. Not bad for 24. We got there two weeks before the first service, didn't know anybody in the entire city, literally. Most of us were Americans. We tried to fit in. We said A on a lot of statements. And, and they would always come back and say, what part of the states are you from? And that was devastating. We printed up 10,000 invites to our first service, and we tried to give out most of them in two weeks. That's a lot of invites when you see the boxes in our living room. God blessed us that first Sunday, two weeks after we arrived, with 101 in attendance. I'll never forget the usher coming down the aisle right before we closed out, handing us that little piece of paper, and I, we opened it up, Henry and I, and we looked at it. It was 101. Amazing. You know, 21 months into that work, just a year and a half roughly into the work, you know the weekly budget of that little struggling church went from 1000 a week to 5000 a week? We set a special contribution goal of 80000 We thought, boy, we're going to have to pray to get there. The church gave 200000 The age of people who were converted ranged from 15 to 70. Some 35 nations were represented in those conversions. Over 60 leaders were raised up in the first year and a half. We went from 11 Bible talks to 27 Bible talks. We even added nine interns on staff. This is 21 months into the work. That Toronto church would go on over the next several years to plant some 11 churches across Canada. The congregation itself grew at its peak to 1,600 and there were 2,200 disciples in 12 churches across Canada in six time zones. The Toronto Church sent disciples to over 60 congregations throughout the world and was especially instrumental in planting churches in Greece, in Italy, in the Philippines, in China, and in India providing leadership for those plantings. Do you know that a year and a half into the work, we had a campaign because we felt we were losing our focus? And we 
invited 110,000 people in Toronto to come out. These were most of them Christians who had been disciples less than a year. We would go down into the awesome financial district of Toronto, and we had a, a sister who had the voice of an angel. She actually has sung since then in uh, Carnegie Hall numerous times, Sherry Sidon, many of you know her. And she would sing on a street corner at lunchtime. A crowd would gather, and then I would get up on that corner and street preach. Man, I'll tell you what, that's humbling. We would go into the subways of Toronto, and we would literally go out two by two, and we would challenge each other with what we call uh, boldness goals. And we would literally stand up and invite the whole subway car out to our campaign. People would stand up in movie theaters. I don't recommend this, but people would stand up in movie theaters before the movie began and say, hey, I just want to take a moment before this movie begins to invite you to an awesome church that has just begun in Toronto. It is amazing what God can do with boldness, with greenness, with raw courage. 400 visitors came out to that very first harvest service. That's, that's more people that are here today. 400. And so I just, I just want you to understand that you're going to get a lot of opportunities in life. And you're going to have people that encourage you to be part of this or be part of that. But let me tell you something in all sincerity. There is hardly a region that is more giving than the Southwest region in the Dallas family of churches. I could make a list of the people that have left here to go to just this week, Cambodia, but so many other places. Oklahoma, you know, just in the last few weeks. Let me say something in all sincerity. Don't even consider going on a mission team unless you really embrace the mission in your life before you go. Because you're not going to be a help to the mission team if you don't. And what that means is, is simply five questions that I've come up with. Number one, what is my true motivation for going? Really, what's your true motivation for going on a mission team? I've heard people say, well, I've always wanted to be near the beach. I love the beach. That may be true, but it's not the highest motivation. We wouldn't have a church in Mumbai if that was the motivation. Am I being, secondly, effective here? How about it? If you're not, trust me, you're not ready to environment like this, with this kind of support, this kind of training, then you're not yet ready to go. Number three, have I, very importantly, reproduced myself? Before we could even think to go to Toronto, we were told, you have to raise up someone to take your place. And for me, that was someone in leadership. That wasn't just another warm body in the pew. Number four, is it best at this time for my family? 
That's a valid question if you have children or you have teens. And number five, will there be other opportunities? Listen, we want to be a sending region. We want to be a sending church. But we want to send our very, very best, as we did to Cambodia with the M's going. And I, uh, I think one of the real challenges we have when it comes to focus is why am I even in Dallas? Why am I even in Dallas? As I wind down my thoughts, let me share this. William Sutton was a famous bank robber. Where comes from? This guy was so good at robbing banks that he spent half of his adult life in prison and he escaped three times. A reporter once asked Slick Willie, why do you keep robbing banks? And I love his answer. He simply responded back, because it's where the money is. <laughs> now that's, that's a focused life. And his purpose simplified his life. But seriously, guys, why are you here in Dallas? Why did the Mancinis of all places choose to come and put roots in Dallas of all places? And I will tell you simply, it's because it's where the people are. I don't know if you realize what you have right here on this mission field called Dallas-Fort Worth. But let me leave you with this. The sheer landmass of the Metroplex, the landmass, is larger than the states of Rhode Island and Connecticut combined. Yeah, that's why you do a lot of driving. It's not just the largest metropolitan area in Texas. Did you know we live in the largest metropolitan area in the entire South? In fact, if you put Dallas and Fort Worth and the Metroplex together, based on the population of the United States, we would be fourth in size behind New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. In fact, it's where nearly 7 million people call home. Our Metroplex is the sixth largest economy by output. You say, why do you care? Because every year, almost 1 million people are moving into Texas. And a huge portion of those to the Metroplex. We're called the Southwest Region. And I bet you didn't even know that the top two of the top three cities are in our region. 
population-wise. Dallas being the largest, not ours yet. Fort Worth and Arlington. It's because it's where the people are. You say, singles ministry. You know, I'm single. Maybe I just need to go somewhere. Are you kidding me? Really, are you kidding me? Do you realize that of the nearly 7 million people that make up this Metroplex, 53% are unmarried? Singles? In fact, shockingly, the medium age of our Metroplex is only 32 years old. That is awesome. You know, maybe we just need, like Jesus said, to open our eyes. To look at the fields. And to understand they are truly white into the harvest. Do you know the Bible says that God has chosen the exact time and the exact place, Acts 17, that we are to live? Don't say four months more and then the harvest. Open your eyes this week. What campus, what campus has God put you on? He chose it. You didn't. You think you chose it. Acts 17 says he chose the exact time and the exact place. Maybe even the exact dorm and the exact roommate that you were to have. Three of my roommates became disciples in college. It was hard to live with me and not be a disciple. How about who's sitting next to you in that high school class? Maybe you just need to understand God has put you in that exact algebra class, so get over your attitude and study hard. But you're sitting next to someone that needs the gospel, no doubt. You're going back to work. You're fired up about it, aren't you? You're thinking, man, I've got to drive through Rhode Island and Connecticut just to get to work. Yeah, everything's bigger in Texas. Travis, that's a lot of roads, isn't it? Darn right, it's a lot of roads. You're going to work. Not to get a paycheck. You're going to work to get something more valuable than the entire world, a soul. I love Adam Nago's company. I think, Adam, how many disciples do you have there now? How many? Five. That's pretty spectacular. How about, brothers and sisters, I'm so far out of my notes I blame it on the anesthesia, the effects of it. I, uh, my mind is as good as it can be right now. You'll have to bear with me. But I, uh, I, I just really want to make an appeal. Don't be thinking the grass is greener somewhere else. Understand what incredible opportunity we have right here. And if you can't get excited about some of the things I shared with you, then, uh, then God help us because we 
have found our boundaries have truly landed in good and pleasant places. It is a uh, privilege to uh, be part of leading this great ministry, and I'm proud to call you my brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us embrace afresh the mission of Jesus.